Remain standing and uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Let us give attention to God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, whom by God's power and being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexhaustible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be bought, excuse me, be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he has foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass does wither and the flower does fade, but the word of our God will stand forever, truly. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that we could come this morning, that we could hear your word. Lord, we pray that the seed of your word would take root in our hearts. We know that Satan is here today, Lord, in this place. He and his demons, and they desire nothing more than like the birds of the air to snatch the seed off the ground, to, to snatch your word, Lord, that it may not take root in our hearts. But we pray for your spirit, O oh God, that not only would your word take root, but it would bear fruit in our lives. We ask and pray in your name. Amen. Well, oftentimes when we face a new year, uh, we have goals and, and we have resolutions and, and a new sense of purpose, do we not? We sort of see oftentimes that the new year is sort of a fresh start. Get a start all over and we, we oftentimes want to accomplish things. And so we do have those goals. Now, some people uh, have said, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Because they've been doing it enough years and they've joined the gym or they decided to start a new diet or you know whatever the the resolution is and by maybe the the third week in january or maybe by the first of april or whatever they find themselves sort of deviating from that path and so they're like yeah i'm not going to die on the hill of my own expectations anymore but i would suggest to you that it's it's not a bad thing to have goals it's not a bad thing uh, in the sense that even if you wander off these things, you can, if you have those goals, you have something to sort of guide you and to keep you focused. And one of the things that, that we did, uh, that the elders decided to do uh, starting last year, was to sort of propose a, a theme, or maybe a better way to say is an emphasis for the new year. And so last year, our theme was walking together. You know, what it meant for Christians to live life together, not just on Sunday morning, but as we're scattered all over uh, the area. And we are a church that is scattered. I think we represent like 10 different communities around Andover. And, you know, how do we stay connected with one another and love one another and minister to one another? And I have watched you do that this past year and in a glorious and wonderful way. I've watched you do that as you, many of you have gone through very difficult times. And, and even as you're going through those difficult times, I have watched you not just turn inward to your own problems and the things you've been wrestling with, but you've been ministering to each other and loving one another. And it's been neat to see what God has done in our congregation. Well, this year, our theme is uh, devoted to God. Uh, really, it's the idea of growing together in sanctification, what it means to grow in our faith as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Of course, that doesn't mean that what we're going to do is say, okay, we're no longer going to live in community with one another. We're going to now move on to this new theme and forget about loving each other. That's not what I'm saying. Obviously, we're going to continue to do that. But we're also going to have a look towards what it means to be to living lives that are devoted uh, to the God who has saved us. And to help us sort of move in that direction in this year, I want my first sermon series to, to be on the topic of sanctification. Of course, tied with that is holiness and being set apart. And, and sort of the guide that I'm going to use, because that's a broad topic, and there's a lot that could be said about that. I'm, I'm going to use Sinclair Ferguson's book, Devoted to God, Blueprints for Sanctification. So if you've read that book, you'll, you'll recognize some of the things I say. Of course, not everything that, that I preach on, but you'll recognize some things, and and that's good. You see, we as a church say that we exist as Kirk of the Plains. The, the short answer is to make disciples. Now, there's a lot that's packed in that little phrase, and we unpack that more so on our website and, and stuff. And we do this for the glory of God, and uh, we want to continue to focus to do that. I, I, as many of you know, I'd love to read the Puritans. And one of the things that was sort of a shock to me and sort of difficult to swallow when I first started reading the Puritans was I could never see where they ever talked about discipleship. Uh, and, and that sort of rattled my cage because I'm a guy that loves to disciple people. And I thought, Lord, the Puritans didn't disciple people? Then I realized that, no, they, just, they talked about discipleship all the time. They just used terms like sanctification and holiness and things like that. So uh, anyway, if, if we are going to be a church who makes disciples, then we need to understand what sanctification is and what God is doing in our lives and in making us holy. So we're going to take about nine or ten weeks, the first couple of months of this year, and we're going to dig into this topic and seek to understand uh, not only what the Bible teaches, but also what this means for our lives and the lives of our church. So I want for us to... to uh, Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, uh, 25, as we consider the foundation of sanctification. The foundation of sanctification. And, and we're not going to have time to unpack all 25 verses. We'd be here forever if we sought to do that. But what we're going to do is just sort of try to mine some of the wonderful jewels that are in this passage and sort of pull them out and examine them very briefly and then take them with us this week and think about those things and pray over those things uh, as we consider what God is doing in the lives of his people in their sanctification. Now, before we jump into the text, though, I, I do want to just clarify a few things. Um, first of all, it's important that we never confuse justification and sanctification. You know, justification is us being... Uh, made right with God. It is the grounds of our salvation. And here I think the, the shorter catechism can help us as we seek to understand what the Bible teaches about this. In a summary statement, the shorter catechism says justification is an act, is an act of God's free grace. Okay? It's something that He did at a point in time. It is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all of our sins. He forgives us. We would say today, He saves us, right? He pardons all of our sins and He accepts us 
as righteous in his sight. Now, why does he do that? For the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what Christ has done for us. And the New Testament emphasizes that we are justified by grace through faith. And we're not justified by what we've accomplished before we have become a Christian or after we have become a Christian. So it's not like, you know, I, I've done this great thing and so God has saved me. Now, sanctification um, is a work of God's grace. The difference between justification and sanctification, justification is an act. It's something that God did at a point in time. Whereas sanctification is a work. It is a process of God's free grace. It's something he does over time, whereby we are renewed in the whole man and the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live into righteousness. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. I'll explain a little bit more about sanctification, but in the same way that the New Testament emphasizes that we must not confuse justification and sanctification, it also drives home the point that justification and sanctification are inseparable and they are united through faith in Jesus Christ. So much so that it's, it's not possible to have genuine justification without growing in sanctification. Do you hear me? You, you cannot have genuine justification without growing in sanctification. Let, look, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 14, says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You, you see that sense of our sanctification uh, as we're pursuing that, that holiness. Um, that is to say, in order to experience the consummation of justification, to the end goal of being justified, we must experience sanctification. In other words, if we are to see the Lord, go to heaven, be in heaven and see the Lord, uh, we, have to, we have to be sanctified. Uh, just, just think, and the reason I make that point is this. Uh, just think of the number of people that you know who call themselves Christians because they were saved, they prayed a prayer, they, they did something, and they expect to go to heaven when they die. If you ask them, Will you go to, are you a Christian? Will you go to heaven? They say, sure. But when you look at their lives, there's no evidence of a changed heart. There's no desire in their heart to die to sin. There, there's no evidence that they are seeking to live in, in righteousness. As a matter of fact, when you look at their life, you think there's really not much difference in their life and that of my unbelieving friends. And, and, and Hebrews warns us that they're going to have a rude awakening. You know, because it's not that someone can just be justified and then, you know, one day they'll hopefully see the Lord that they're just, if they are truly justified, there will be a process of transformation, a process of sanctification that takes place in their life before that day when they die and they go and they be with the Lord. Because there is no such thing as genuine justification that does not develop 
into actual transformation or sanctification of a person's life. And yes, it's a process, but it will occur. And so I just want to clarify those things because I think there's a lot of confusion about those things in, in the church today. Now, let's look at sanctification just a little bit more closely. Sanctification, as the Old Testament and the New Testament uses the language, it's of that of being separated or cut off uh, or being placed at a distance from where, and what I mean by placed at a distance, I mean placed at a distance from where we were in our sinfulness to where God is in his holiness. And this is done in such a way that the being placed near to God and far from our former condition, we do begin to reflect the beauty of God's holiness that begins to shine in our lives. That's what we see in our sanctification. In, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, sanctification is the work which God does in the lives of his people to separate them from what they were by nature in sin and to transfer them into his own likeness and his own glory. Now think about that. That is a wondrous work that God is doing in his people. I mean, when I say wondrous work, I'm talking about an amazing work. But it's also a very laborious, it's a very hard work that God is doing in us to change us. Maybe you've heard uh, a Christian say something like this, I thought I had difficulties before I became a Christian, but I seem to have even more difficulties since becoming a Christian. Can anybody in here relate to that? Yes. Why is that? Why is it that sometimes things are harder? Well, let me suggest to you, it is because God is doing nothing less than changing you from what you were to what he wants you to be. God is taking you from being an enemy of God who does not seek God, who only loves yourself, and he is changing you to be his beloved son who glories in who he is, who, who desires to live a holy and a godly life. And that is a wondrous work. But it is oftentimes a hard work that we must go through in order for God to do that. Now, as wondrous as that work is, it is also a work of praise, too, to God. Because God is taking you from what you were by nature as sinners and, and, and by instinct and, and turning you into a person who begins to reflect the purity and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hearts should be full of praise. I mean, that's what Peter said. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And then he just goes on from there. But he's just uh, driven to praise God. That's what we see. A man who is delirious and prays to God for his wonderful work of salvation. Now, think about it. Who else? could be so grateful for God's work of sanctification in their life than the Apostle Peter, right? You know, the man that oftentimes put his foot in his mouth. You know, I mean, who else do you know in Scripture that blundered through his Christian walk like the Apostle Peter? Well, um, 
I think most of us can relate to Peter for that, right? And, and I think it's, it's no wonder that Peter is giving praise to God for his wonderful work of salvation that he's doing because Peter knows he needs that. And what better person for God to use to teach us about sanctification and, uh, than, than the Apostle Peter? I think he could have used Paul or any number of authors, but I don't think it's any accident that he used Peter. And what an encouragement for us who struggle in our faith, right? To know that God is sanctifying us. And so sanctification is God setting us apart for himself, creating a distance between what we were by nature and what he is making us by his grace to be to reflect his character. Uh, I guess maybe if you just want to say it in one line, uh, uh, sanctification is God setting us apart and then he transforms us into the image of his son. And so I want us to look at our text today. And as we do, we're, I, I want us to look at, if you want to, uh, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it, six <coughs> foundational stones uh, regarding our sanctification, six truths about sanctification for the believer that sort of set the foundation for our sanctification. So let's look at these very briefly this morning. First of all, our sanctification is the purpose of God, the Trinity. Our sanctification is the purpose of God, the Trinity. Look at verse 1 and 2. To those who are elect, or that word is the word chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the uh, sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. That This is just a, a more expounded way of saying that God, He chose you because He wants to sanctify you. In, in accordance with the rest of the New Testament, Peter says that God's election is the foundation of our sanctification. Not that our sanctification is the reason for God choosing us. Some people mistakenly think that God looked down through the corridors of time and he said, you know, Rick Franks is going to want to be uh, to choose me as, and to follow me, and so I will choose him. But that's not how God works. God takes the initiative of our salvation. And it is God as the Trinity that takes the initiative. So it is the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Uh, the Trinity, um, the doctrine of the Trinity is not some obscure uh, theoretical Christian doctrine of little practical importance to the Christian life. No, it's very practical. Think about it. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are always working in the lives of His people. Now, young people, kids, the world may seem like a scary place at times, but I want to encourage you, and I want you to hear me. If you are a believer, you must never forget that the entire being of God is always at work in you for your sanctification, to make you like Jesus Christ. Now let the weight of that sink in. Let the, the weight of that sink in. The entire Godhead devotes himself to sanctifying his people. 
That's what God has set his heart on before the foundation of the world. It's God's, actually his number two priority is to sanctify us. His number one priority is what? To bring glory to himself. But then he is choosing to sanctify us. Now, what does that mean for us in our Christian life? Well, let me ask you this question. Is, is your sanctification a priority in your life? Does your sanctification actually have any bearing upon your to-do list for the day? Is it, does it fill your mind? Well, if these things are not on the top priority in our lives, then, then it's hardly surprising that we find ourselves struggling with the way in which God is oftentimes dealing with us. If, if God has committed himself to sanctifying our lives, then, then we had better commit ourselves to that sanctification in our lives, or otherwise our wills and God's wills will be at conflict with one another. On the other hand, if, we, if I find myself seeking more and more to commit myself to the work of God's transforming in my life, I have this glorious encouragement that the whole of the Godhead cooperates not only with each other, but with his purpose in my heart to change me and make me like Jesus. And so we may be encouraged, brothers and sisters, as we seek to grow in Christian holiness, that, that God is behind this work and it's not left up to us. So no matter what the devil does in opposing us, all of God is at work to make me like Jesus Christ. And so I, I hope this morning, as you, as you think about that, that you are encouraged that your sanctification is the purpose of, of God the Trinity. The second foundation stone I want us to see is, is that our sanctification is the commandment of God the Father. Look at verses 15 and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, when it says, for it is written, it's talking about where it's written in the Old Testament. And this is a quote from Leviticus 19.2, and which Leviticus 19 is a chapter that then goes on to expound in some detail regarding the Ten Commandments and the other commandments of God. And it's as though God were saying in that chapter, all these commandments that I am giving you in this chapter in Leviticus 19 can be summed up in the principle in verse 2, you are to be holy because I am holy. Now, it's interesting, God unfolds this principle of holiness in the Old Testament sort of gradually. He, he does so at first through the picture language of the ceremonial law. Uh, when he builds into the life of his people and the rituals and the ceremonies that they do, little hints in very tangible ways that they are to be separated from the world. They are to be distinct. They are to be a peculiar people. They are not to be like the world, but they are to be entirely different than the world. But as the Old Testament then goes on and begins to unfold, it begins to explain that um, 
it begins to explain holiness in a way that's at a personal moral level until eventually Isaiah begins to speak uniquely about God as the Holy One of Israel. If you want to do an interesting study, read through the book of Isaiah and just look at the number of times that Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One. And in revealing this through Isaiah, God is beginning to show his people that holiness is not simply a matter of keeping the Old Testament ritual and the Old Testament commandments, but rather holiness is beginning to share in the character of God himself. That God's character begins to be reproduced in his people in a miniature form. And this is what the Lord does in our hearts. But unfortunately, there are those in the church that sort of fall into the same category as the Old Testament believer. And, and there would be those in the Old Testament who would look at God's holiness and they would keep the rituals and they would keep the outward signs of, of the covenant and yet their hearts were far away from the Lord. And sometimes today we see the same thing. Do you not see Christians who in their public life will speak against sin and they'll stay away from the bars and they'll do all these things, you know, I'll, I'll dress appropriately, I'll do all these things so that I can look like I'm obeying the Lord. And yet in my private life, I'm not so careful to guard my heart against sin. And, and in such a person's life, there can become an attitude where I think that I'm holier than this person here and I can look down upon other people because externally I'm seeking to look holy. But that's not what true holiness looks like. As I, as I said, holiness is beginning to share in the character of God himself. And, and we see that in the life of the believer, not only when they're concerned about that in a public manner, but also in their private life as well. And, and as we look at Isaiah, it, uh, we can see that his experience in chapter 6, which we're all very familiar with, that it was very devastating to uh, Isaiah because he was conscious of God's holiness in such a way that he realized his inability to conform to God's holiness. And the holiness of God was so weighty that it made this holy man of God, this prophet of God, understand that he was truly unclean. And here he is, a preacher of God's word, and yet he felt that his lips were unclean. But it was from God's presence, uh, it was from the presence of God, excuse me, that holy pardon in the form of a, a coal from the altar of sacrifice was placed upon Isaiah's lips, and he tasted the exquisite refining pain of the double cure of justification, that his sins were forgiven. And, and, and he as cleansed and purified and sanctified so that he could then go and he could preach about what a holy God his God was. You see, for Isaiah, it was sort of the beginning of new things. For, for he encountered God in, in his holiness, not simply part of ceremonies or as a series of mer, uh, moral commands, but in the sheer, unadulterated moral righteousness of God's being. He saw God for who he is. And, and that helps us to understand why those who are becoming holy will always, like Isaiah, have this irresistible attraction to the beauty of God's holy love. That they will see what life in the presence of God is really like. 
and they will recognize that that's how life is meant to be. That as we, as we seek the Lord, as we seek to grow in holiness, that we will look at the world and we'll say, this is not what God has created us to be. But as we walk in holiness, as we are sanctified, as we become more like Jesus Christ, we see this is how God has called us to live. This is how he created us to live. And so there's a heart desire for such holiness. But, but also there is an irresistible distaste for the things of this world. At the same, You see both those things that are happening at the same time. Because our desire will be to be holy because God is holy. The third thing I want us to see is that our sanctification is the effect of the work of Christ our Savior. Sanctification is the effective work of Christ as our Savior. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, what is an exile? Exile is someone who is separated from his homeland and he's living in another place, right? He's a, he's a stranger. He doesn't belong here. Well, as a Christian, we are someone who once belonged to the world, but we're now strangers in the world. We don't fit in. But now as Christians, we belong to God in a new and a holy nation. And so as someone who is living in a place that they don't belong, we're to live our lives with fear or with reverence. Now, why? Look at verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, what he's outlining here is our sense of the importance of holiness and our incentive to grow in holiness, that it will always be rooted in our understanding of and our appreciation for the work of Christ. It's what Christ has done for us. And, and he says in verses 18 through 20, uh, he uses Old Testament language, the lamb that was without blemish, referring back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, or he's chosen for this before the creation of the world. He redeems us, not with silver or gold, but with his own precious blood, showing us the value of the sacrifice. You could almost imagine the angelic beings watching in silence, holding their breath as they witness the crucifixion of God's Son. And you could almost imagine the angels saying, how could this be? How, how could Jesus love sinners like that? That he would ransom them, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with his own blood. You see, what is free to us was costly to Jesus. And, and if Christ is so admired by the angels for whom he did not die, then Peter's point is well taken. How much more valuable should he be to those whom he did die? Not only to save, but to sanctify. And how is worth, uh, he is worth living in exile for, is he not? So as we live in this world, as, as we function and, 
And we, we feel that sense of being estranged from this world. Like, we don't fit. And there's times where we could just be weary uh, as we go to work, as we interact in our neighborhoods and, and all these things. Uh, how else should we respond but by giving ourselves to Him, to live in exile to Him for the work that He is doing in us? The fourth foundation, our sanctification is the fruit of the Spirit of ministry. Our sanctification is the fruit of the Spirit's ministry. Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, Peter goes on and he unpacks this towards the end of the passage. He, he talks about part of what the Spirit is doing uh, is the way by which the Spirit, we are, we are brought to new life through the Word. But in verse 3, he says part of it also is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That we have been bought as God's adopted children into an inheritance that could never perish or spoil that's in heaven for us. And predominantly, the language Peter uses here shows that the Holy Spirit brings us into God's family, giving us an inheritance shared uh, and sharing with us the nature of God. Now, e even more clearly, you can see that in 2 Peter, if you flip over just a couple of pages, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us in His precious and very great promises, so that through Him you may become partakers of the divine nature. That we, we share with God's nature as we become like Jesus Christ. Uh, John talks about this as well in 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And John says the reason Christians don't go on living lives in sin, but instead lives of holiness, is because God's seed has been planted in them. He said no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That seed, of course, is the new birth. It's the new life. It, 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 and in that is the seed of, of a, a new family nature. We are made to be different. We look different. We are not in uh, Adam anymore. We are in Christ. And as those who are in Christ, we take on the family characteristics. And it's important that we understand the implications for this. The reason we grow in holiness is because that's the chief family characteristic of the new family into which we have been born by His Spirit and to which we have been adopted that we may share in His glorious inheritance. And so that's the family resemblance. Now, sanctification in the Old Testament involved rites and rituals that were often very unclear for God's people and oftentimes a burden because they were looking at them only as a sense of, I just got to do, make these sacrifices, do these things. But in the New Testament, sanctification ceases to be a burden. I'm not saying sanctification is not difficult. It is, but it's not a burden. But it is the work of a loving, 
Heavenly Father in the lives of His children. So, even in, in the frailty of our obedience, even as we struggle in our sanctification to put to death the sin or to live into righteousness unto Christ, the love of the Father accepts the service of His children. The fifth foundational stone is our sanctification provides a reason for the trials in our lives. Our sanctification provides a reason for the trials in our lives. Look at verse, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter tells us, that, that God tests our work. He's not slow to do that. God is at work in our lives as, as His children, and He tests that work to show the genuineness of our faith. We, on the other hand, are very slow oftentimes to uh, put ourselves under examination because we have a lingering fear, I think, sometimes that we will fail. Uh, therefore, we don't like to be tested. And sometimes we struggle against God's test. I think the other side of that is we don't enjoy suffering. You know, uh, and I, I, I understand that. But the point Peter's making is this, that suffering is one of the chief instruments that God uses in the process of sanctifying his people. And, and so God puts us in the fire, much like a refiner would put gold in the fire, so as that the impurities may come to the surface and they may be dealt with. And God does the same with our lives as well. And, and he, you know, he does that to build Christian character and to make us more like Christ. I mean, if, if, have you ever thought about this? If, if, the, if the Lord Jesus, if, if His obedience was developed through suffering, then we should not be surprised that God would use the same method with us as well. Think about it this way. Um, maybe you know someone who has become impatient, irritated, angry, you probably can't relate to that at all. But uh, let's just say you know somebody that did that. And immediately after they did that, they say, Oh, I apologize so much. I'm so sorry. I, I'm usually a very patient person. Well, let me suggest to you that the truth is that this person probably is not a very patient person. Okay? Um, that it's just that their, their patience hasn't been fully tested. <coughs> And that God was testing that patience. Because you see, patience or, or any other struggle that we might have develops only in the context that can stimulate impatience or irritation. In other words, as those things are tested, whether it be our integrity, whether it be our patience, whether it be our love, whatever it may be, that only grows as it is tested. And so the way Christian character is strengthened is by stress. Therefore, the friction that God builds into the Christian life is not accidental. It is deliberate. 
I, I would even suggest to you that it is strategic and intended to produce growth in holiness. And so there is a reason for the trials that we go through that it would cause us to grow in our sanctification. The final foundational stone, our sanctification is intimately related to how we view the world to come. How we are to view the world to come. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now what is that salvation that he's talking about here? Well, very simply, it is the completion of our holiness. Uh, that, that glory to which we look forward to when we see the face of Jesus Christ and we're transformed into his likeness and we become like him. We no longer have that struggle with sin, but we live in perfect righteousness. That, that, that glory is the consummation of the sanctification that God has is, is begun in our lives even now here upon this earth. But, but, but how easy is it for us to deceive ourselves to think that we will be happy to pursue holiness in heaven if we are unhappy in pursuing holiness here on this earth? You see, Peter sees a continuity here between life here on this earth and life in heaven. Uh, we, in other words, we are longing for heaven and living for holiness uh, because we are currently pursuing holiness here upon this earth. And so for the Christian, there's happiness, there's joy in our life, because the future will only bring us a greater and more intense holiness, which the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have already begun to do in our lives, which we desire more and more and more. And so what makes us think we will enjoy holiness in heaven if we are not pursuing holiness here and now. Brothers and sisters, as we think about our salvation, I want us to think about these six foundational stones. Take this home with you this week and consider these things. First of all, that God himself is the holy, uh, excuse me, that God himself, the Holy Trinity, is devoted to your sanctification. Do you realize that? God is not just passively, you know, letting you just get by and hopefully you'll be more like Jesus. He is intentionally, with all the power and the ability within him, working for your sanctification. God the Father also has commanded us to pursue our sanctification. It is something that is to be a priority. Christ the Son has died to affect it. The Spirit works in our lives to bring forth the fruit of our sanctification. God sends trials into our lives in order to produce sanctification. And heaven itself is a world that is full of sanctification, of holiness. And so with these foundations built into our lives... We have every encouragement we need to be devoted to God. Amen? Amen? Let's bow our heads as we take a moment just to, to meditate upon God's word and to silently respond to him appropriately.
Our Heavenly Father, as we read such a passage as this, we're, we're conscious that we, we simply scrape the surface of, of what is here. But Lord, we're also conscious that we fail to realize what a great work that you are doing in us and through your church. Lord, please enable us to entrust our sanctification to the wonderful foundation that you have laid for us in, in all of our waywardness and in, in our reluctance and in our fears in our selfishness we pray for grace to yield our lives our minds our desires our wills to what you are doing in us taking what we are by nature and making us like your son we, we pray that we might build these things more and more into our lives. We, that, that we might, I shouldn't say build these things, just acknowledge these things that you were building into our lives. That your holiness <coughs> may be more and more evident. And that Jesus Christ may be honored in our, in our sanctification, in our witness to those around us. We pray in your name. Amen.